you turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 8. And if you have your Bible with you, you'll find, and you're not familiar, maybe you're not familiar with the Bible, you're going to find Romans three quarters of the way through, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans. I really encourage people to bring their Bibles. If you don't have one, see us and we'll help you get you one. Or if you have your smartphone, go ahead and use it. But I really encourage people to continue to work with and learn and how to get around in it and use it and read it for yourself and hold on to it. Uh, I think that's an important thing to do. As we, this morning we wrap up the series that we've been in. We've been journeying through this most of the winter, this already not yet. The heart of this series, what it has really been is looking at Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. And what we've been talking about is the reality of the Christian life. And the reality of the Christian life says this. That in Romans chapter 5, it says, Adam sinned, therefore all are sinners. Because we have sinned, we are separated from this God who loves us. We are created in the image of God, but yet we are separated. So there's this reality of sin, this reality of separation. Romans chapter 6 comes along. At the end of Romans 5 and Romans 6, it says Jesus provides us an answer for that separation. And the, the heart of the message of Christianity is not making bad people good, but bringing dead people to life. Sinners who are separated into a magnificent relationship with Jesus. And when, it, when that happens, when I enter that relationship, this already word is what pops up. Because it says in Romans chapter 6 that I am no longer controlled. I am no longer a slave to sin, but I'm now a slave to righteousness. In other words, I have this desire to do what's right. This, I, the section goes on says we are justified. We're made right. We're good. We're glorified. There's, we are made new. We are already new. We are already magnificent and beautiful creatures on the inside. However, the not yet phrase comes along because the Christian life continues to journey. We're here on this earth. We still have a physical earthly body that has sin in that body. And as Romans 7 comes along, the, the writer, the apostle Paul says, why do I continue to do what I do not want to do? A cry of most of our hearts. Why did I do it? Again, then he says, but thanks be to Jesus. So it's this reality, the Christian life of living in this tension of already made new, but yet not yet new. There's still this sin inside of me. So how do we live and how do we traffic in that world? We wrap that up this morning in Romans chapter eight and Romans chapter eight ends with an exclamation point. It is a passionate, full throttle verse of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of Jesus, the message of hope, a message of love. Now, to dive into that verse, to kind of get us ready for it, if you notice in your bulletin at the very top, I ask a question. I think it's important. It's an important question to take time to reflect on because when we start to reflect on it, it makes us yearn for the answer that Paul gives us at the end of Romans 8. And the question is this. What are the defining moments of your life? Or maybe the defining moment But what are the defining moments of your life? Things as you look back through your life that happened to you, that shaped you and defined you and maybe still defining you of much of who you are today. Let me share three. As I thought about that question, three that I wrote down real quick. Some of you may have heard some of these before, but the first one for me was I went to a small Christian school over in Lidditz. And in that school in the, in the early 80s, the, I was um, sent to the IU-13. Some of you know the IU-13 here in Lancaster County. It's a unit that helps learning support and special needs and, and learning disabilities, et cetera. A lot of ways, the IU-13 today is in, has a representation in most of the schools. Back then, the, the IU-13 traveled kind of from school to school in this RV camper unit. And it would come to the school, the school that I went to, and here I am. I remember going out for the very very first time, I think I was in kindergarten, and then first and second grade, I would go out twice a week. The, the RV would come to the school, and then over the, you know, those little intercoms you have in the room, this little intercom would come over, and they'd ask for my name. Everyone in the class knew where I was going. They knew what I was doing, and they knew that Adam is stupid. That's what I was told. It defined me. It shaped me. It was one of those moments in life when it just, it just ate away at my soul. I was then, they, my parents took me to the Sylvan Learning Center, and I tr- they tried everything they could to help me. The ironic thing is, you know what one of my things that I didn't develop in was speaking. I stuttered. I was slow at speech. I had a hard time getting words out of my mouth. I laugh. People tell me today I talk too fast and too much now. But the reality is, it shaped me. For much of my life, I looked at myself as stupid, and I've worked my tail off to prove that I'm not. The second one that really defined me was in 10th grade. I had an unbelievable passion to play football, to excel at football. I wanted to play at Penn State was my dream. Now, up until 10th grade, I was one of the biggest kids on the team. 
one of the biggest kids on the team with moderate athletic ability. So therefore, I always started, I always played because I was one of the biggest kids in the team with moderate athletic ability. So we'll use Adam and we'll use him to help us win. Didn't think a lot about the need to lift weights. Didn't think a lot about the need to work really hard. Didn't think a lot about the need that I really might not be that gifted athletically. So I get to 10th grade and suddenly now I'm playing on the varsity team with all the big boys that worked hard, that have athletic ability that I don't have, who have speed that I don't have, who have these things. And I struggled. I struggled a lot. But inside, I'm trying to figure out how do I make this thing work? That same year, I have, I have asthma. And that year, I happened to contract pneumonia and miss two weeks of practice. At the very end of that, I was standing along the sideline watching practice unfold. And this, the coach was brand new to Warwick at the time, comes on up beside me. And he says, Nagel, that's what they called me. I don't know why. In high school, we don't use kids' first names, but Nagel was my name. Nagel, he said, are you even going to play next year? I'm standing there, I'm thinking, what does that mean? And he goes, you know what? You're a waste of a uniform. Why don't you turn that thing in? Now, here I am, a 10th grade kid who loves football. I want to play. And he thought, I think what he thought, I later coached, I, I joined his staff later on when I got through college, and I actually coached with him, and that was his way of motivating But what it did for me, it defined and it shaped me and it drove me in incredible, unhealthy ways to prove him wrong. And I went to all ends to prove him wrong by the time I hit my senior year. Defined me. It shaped me. The final one I would share is this. I had a lunch with my dad. It's etched in my memory. I came, I left Charlotte. And I want to put a little asterisk next to this. Um, last week, I talked about leaving Charlotte. And I forget that some of you don't know my whole story. And they, uh, there was a guest here last week that went and we're having lunch with one of you. And they said, was he divorced? Because I referenced leaving Charlotte. <laughs> now, I can honestly say I've never known a Charlotte. I've never dated a Charlotte. I've never been around a Charlotte, honestly. So Charlotte, North Carolina, we were down there to plant a church. And when that, it all kind of comes crashing in, I leave that. I'm trying to figure out what to do with life. What do I do now for income? Because I actually left, I didn't want to be a pastor. I was fed up with the church. I was fed up with Christianity. I had a lot of internal stuff that I had to deal with. So I just stepped out. My dad comes to me and says, Adam, I've always looked at you as having gifts of leadership, having this, that. And the other thing. So I would love for you to work with me on this business venture that he was in the middle of um, trying to get off the ground, a startup company. Now I took a deep breath and I thought, boy, could I do that? Could I work with my dad? Now I have a great relationship with my dad. I love my dad to death. I've learned a ton from my dad. My dad mentored me in so many ways. My dad loves me and my dad is for me. I know that, but I was just like, but I don't know if I could really work with him. I said, dad, could we have lunch? So we get together and have lunch, and I'd be just laid out on the table. I have a dad that I love to death that allows me to do this. It's so cool. I'm able to express some hurts and some heartaches I've had. And I just laid it all out on the table. And I began to talk about how I've experienced him and how I've experienced life growing up and how I've experienced living with my grandfather who lived as in our home as a second father to me for 18 years. He lived in an in-laws quarters there. And I began talking about this. And my dad then said, Adam, it might be helpful for you to hear something. And here comes another defining moment. He looked at me in the eyes and he said, Adam, do you know how I've lived my life? I've lived with the motto. And he never said this to me but it it impacted me. He said, I've lived most of my life with the motto and understanding that failure is not an option. Now you say, what's okay. That sounds cool to me. But what that did is that outworked itself in my growing up years. I was scared to death of failure. When I did fail, I never quite knew from those in my family. And in the, as my dad talked to me about where that came from in our family of origin, I never quite knew if I was accepted, if people were proud of me. I worked my tail off not to succeed, but to avoid failure. Terrible way to live life. So it defined me. Now, so there are three, and I can share others that have deeply impacted me, that have woven into the fabric of my tapestry of my life and have made me who I am. The question for you, though, is what would you write there in that line? What has defined you? Now, for you, you hear my stories. For you, it may may prod your thinking a little bit. It might be things like what your mom or your dad did or did not do. Maybe it's a neglect. Maybe it's the fact that they were there, but they were just detached, and they didn't express love. They didn't tell you they loved you. They didn't tell you they were proud of you. Maybe it was flat-out abuse. 
Maybe for you, your defining moment is what your friends at school, the kids at school, and maybe the teachers said about you. For me, it was stupid. Maybe you were ugly. Maybe you were not popular. Maybe you were always on the outside looking in. Maybe for you, your defining moment was what it was to grow up in a poor household. I talked to many that this defines them to the point where they say, you know what? I had nothing and I knew what it was like to have nothing. And I am now going to live to make sure I don't ever experience and feel that again. You knew what it was like to go to school and be made fun of because you didn't have the Air Jordans or the other high-tech clothes and the things that others have had around you. You weren't able to go to the camps and do the sports that others did because your family couldn't afford it. Maybe for you, your defining moment was lack of education. Maybe you're a high school dropout. Maybe you didn't quite complete college, and now you feel trapped and defined by that because you feel this glass ceiling that you can't break in your career. Maybe for you, your defining moment, and there's some, no doubt, in this room that have been defined by this, is sexual assault or rape that was done to you. Maybe as you lost a job, got fired, laid off. Maybe it's a time you spent homeless, living from a shelter to shelter, street corner to street corner. Maybe, maybe for some of you, it's the abortion that you had as a young lady. Maybe for some of you, it's finding that phone message as you scroll through your spouse's phone and realize my spouse is not being faithful to me. They're cheating. Maybe it's divorce, abandonment. Maybe for some of you, your defining moment, and this is a painful one, is loss or death of a child or a parent or someone that's close to you that you lost, that you put your life and you invested in and now they're gone. Maybe it's a car accident. Maybe for some of you, it's hearing a doctor say cancer or incurable disease or ADD or bipolar. Maybe it's infertility. Maybe for some of you, your defining moment was that was a moment when a friend stuck a knife in your back and twisted it with deep betrayal and hurt. As you think about these things, they think about my stories, what ends up happening with these things that happen to us. These are moments of the past that still have power to shape me today in the present. As I share those stories with you, I'd like to say that they've been scrubbed out of my heart and mind, but the reality is they've shaped me. And those things that happened to me in the past, they still carry forward and they still in some way have power to shape me in the present. They define me. Oftentimes they define me and they define you in a subconscious, subtle manner that we aren't even aware of. My prayer this morning, as we look at Romans chapter 8, as we end this series, my prayer for you and my prayer for me, this is a battle for me. My prayer is that we don't look to these things to define me, but instead we look and allow the love of God to define me. To allow his love, his radical, radical love to define me and who I am. Now, as you think about this, You know, last week, if you look at Romans chapter 8, there's a couple questions that were brought up in verse 33. Those questions were things like, who is it that condemns? Who will bring a charge against me? Who, Who can separate me? Because Jesus Christ, period, justifies me. Now, here's the thing, reality of what I know and what I've learned about my own life and what I learn about a lot of Christians is we intuitively know We intuitively know, intellectually we know, that we are forgiven for our sins. We know if you're a Christian here this morning, you're a person who says, I believe in Jesus, period. We know that when I sin, he forgives me. Now, some of us struggle with it. Some of us do some really big, big things that we struggle at times as, can he forgive me for this? But intuitively, we know and we're taught that my sin, Jesus died for, he will forgive me. But when you look at that list of the, maybe the thing that you wrote down on your list, it's not your sin. It's something that was done to you. Sin committed against you. And what I have learned about my own heart, my own life and others as I interact with them, it is those things more than my own sin, which Paul deals with in the verses before what we're going to look at. It's that stuff that has the greatest power over me, over you. It is that stuff, the stuff that is outside of my control, the stuff that is done to me that defines me more so than my own sin. It is that stuff that causes us to doubt the goodness and love of God more than anything else. That stuff that's outside that happens to me. 
Look with me at verse 35 of Romans chapter 8, where we pick up this week. Paul says this, the the writer of Romans, he says this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He asks one of these final questions. He has this whole string of questions through this chapter. Here comes one of the final questions. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That word who in the Greek language, some of your translations might actually have this. The word who can also be translated what? Who or what can separate us from the love of Christ? And he gives you this list. And look at this list. Everything on this list is outside of my control. Everything on this list is stuff that happens to me, not stuff that I do. So he says, who can separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What shall separate me? They look at the thing that you wrote down in your list and I probably, probably the thing that you wrote down that defines you or the thing that you have in your mind will fit in the category of one of these things. Shall trouble. Maybe the thing that you wrote down is trouble. Some kind of trouble that came to you or that you found yourself in. Hardship. Homeless. Poor. Stupid. Hardship. Or persecution. A friend betraying you. A spouse cheating on you. Persecution. Famine. The inability to... to Famine means the difficulty gaining and gathering the things that I need to live today in my food and my substance and my, the stuff I need to exist. Jobless. I lost my job. Fits under that one. Nakedness. Nakedness doesn't mean that I'm running around naked, but it means the word that captures this picture of being without clothes. It captures this picture of not having the resources to put a shirt on my back. Should that separate me from the love of God? No. Or danger or sword. Now, verse 36 then comes along, and verse 36 says something very interesting. And I finally, so Paul says this Who shall separate us from the love of God? Then he lists all this trouble, and then all of a sudden he says something very interesting. Verse 36, it says it this way As it is written, he quotes Psalm 44, as it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So look at what he's saying. He says, For we face death. The Christian life, at some capacity, we face death and hardship. We are sheep to be what? Suffering and hardship is a part of our human reality. Now, the very next verse then, though, he says this. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Thing that's interesting to me is I talk with friends, as I talk with people who give an objection to God being a good God. And you hear it a lot, whether it's an atheist, I have some friends that have claimed to be atheists that flat out say, I deny God's existence. Whether it's someone who grew up in the church and now very skeptical of the reality of God, when I talk to those people and ask them what it is about God that they reject, almost always in the top three, and often this one lands at number one. You know what the objection that you hear from people like that? How can God, of this Bible that you read, we read that God loves? Are you kidding me? They'll say. And what they always raise in an objection is the reality of suffering, pain, and evil in the world. How can this God be a good God and love, but yet this garbage is happening all around me or to me? Have you ever heard it? If you've ever talked with someone who really gives an objection to God, oftentimes it lands up there near the top. Now, as I talk about that, I think about that, I interact with friends. Here's one of the things I've come to realize there are not a lot of good answers. You say, no, wait a minute. There are not a lot of good answers to that question. I've heard people theorize. I've heard people philosophize. I've heard people go on about this. And I've not found a lot of good answers, to be very honest. One of the things that I believe with all my heart is why people ask that question so much is because of how we in the church have defined Christianity. I think too often Christianity has been defined as health and wealth. Come to Jesus so life gets good. That's not true. Matter of fact, 
I might say it this. I think people struggle with that question because we, Adam Nagel, I'll say I, Adam Nagel, does not suffer well. Look at Colossians 1.24, the same writer who wrote the book of Romans, and he says this. He says, now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. So he's saying, I suffered. This Apostle Paul, and you know his, some of you know the Bible, know his story. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was left for dead. He had physical afflictions in his body. He was, he was handicapped at some capacity. We don't know what it was, but he suffered and he suffered deep. And he says, now I rejoice. I take joy in that suffering for what was suffered for you. And look at this next sentence, the next phrase, and I fill up in my flesh in my body, what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now you back up and look at that middle statement. So Paul at some capacity is saying, look at what he said. You hear me say Jesus plus nothing. You hear me say, you want to get to heaven? You want a relationship with God? It's Jesus plus nothing. Jesus death and his resurrection is enough. It's period. It is enough. But here Paul is saying at some capacity, it's what? Lacking. Now, Paul cannot be saying we need something outside of Jesus to get to heaven. Do you know what he's saying? My opinion, my personal opinion is what he's really getting at here is most of us know intellectual truth, but we don't have it in our heart till we experience it or see it. And I think he's writing to a church, a church 2000 years ago that was just, just outside of the life of Christ. They missed the life of Christ by just a few years. They didn't see Jesus hang on a cross. They didn't see Jesus suffer for them. They didn't see Jesus afflicted. They didn't see Jesus take on the sin of the world. But the core central message of the gospel is that Jesus came to suffer for you and for me. So what Paul is saying is, I want you to know and see tangibly what that looks like. So I'm going to take it upon myself. So you can see a Christian suffer well. And nothing, nothing glorifies and magnifies Christ in the presence of others than when we suffer well. Our world hates pain, hates suffering, hates hardship, and we will go to all lengths to eradicate it. So when our world sees someone who walks through suffering, it's hard, it's painful, it hurts. When they see someone walk through suffering well, it draws them to Christ is what Paul's really driving at here. Now, as I mentioned, people philosophize and theorize about how God can be a loving God and a good God, but there's still evil and suffering. I'll be honest with you. The questions I'll hear asked is, (laughs) I don't find answers to them, a lot of what they say. And what I hear said a lot is, is at the end of the day, in these theories and these philosophies, they do not get God off the hook. I'll be very honest. I've yet to find an argument that really, really answers how it happens, how God uses evil, how evil exists, how God is good. I've yet to find an answer that really makes sense. But here's, I come across a guy named Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City. He writes a book, Reason for God. And I think the first time when I read this, it began to make sense. He says this, the Christian God came to earth to deliberately put himself on the hook of human suffering. See what he's saying? He's saying most of us want the question and ask, how do we get God off the hook? Tim Keller says, well, we don't get God off the hook. God came to earth to put himself on the hook for human suffering. It changes the discussion completely. He goes on, he says it this way. He says the Christian God or Christianity does not provide the reason for each experience of pain. So the Bible doesn't say that the Christianity does not provide the reason for each experience of pain. Instead, it provides deep resources for actually facing suffering with hope and courage rather than bitterness and despair. It's that same thing. Paul says in verse 37, no, in all things, we are more than what conquerors. No matter what you face, it doesn't mean God doesn't love you. You can live through this because he actually loves you. Great. Now, Tim Keller goes on to say, talks about why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? It's a famous question. My personal opinion, and Tim Keller says this well, I'm going to put the quote up in a minute. When you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we don't know what the answer is. I'll be very honest. We do not know the answer. 
but we know what the answer isn't. And here's what he says. Tim Keller says, we know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be. It can't be that he's indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. I love this. This is the heart of the message of Jesus. People had asked me all the time, well, Adam, how can God be loving and how can God be good when there's all this evil and suffering in the world? And I say, you know what? I don't know. I don't have all the answers for it, but I do know this. Because there's suffering, because there's evil, doesn't disprove that he's loving and good. It actually, in my opinion, when you really understand the heart of the message of Jesus, it proves that he's loving and good because he was willing to take that suffering and that evil upon himself for you and for me. He put himself on the hook. We try and get him off all the time. But the reality is he came and put himself on the hook. Look back at verse 32 of Romans chapter 8, the one we looked at last week. We didn't spend a lot of detail on this, but look, if you go back to it, it says this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? It says he did not spare his own son. He came to this earth to put himself on the hook for our pain and our suffering. I shared this story and I'm going to share it again because I, I always try and come up with good illustrations to demonstrate this love. And there are, there are a lot in the world that we see day to day in the movies we watch that really demonstrate this love. This one I continue to come back to because it is so rich. It is so meaningful. I actually shared it in one of my messages that I candidated here. And I actually showed there's a, a full motion picture on this story. It's a, it's a real story. Um, I'm not going to show the clip this morning. I want to tell the story again because it is a powerful story to me. I think it captures this. And I think probably some of you may have forgotten it by this point, hopefully. (laughs) Hopefully it's fresh and new uh, at this point. It happened in, there was a father with a little boy in one of the Eastern Bloc countries in Europe when communism was still at its peak. And this father was a, a drawbridge train operator. He lowered and raised the bridge that the train would come across to leave the country into the next country is a lot of times countries are divided with rivers. So he stands there in this river, the train track comes across, the drawbridge is up so the boats can get, the ships can get up and down to get cargo up into the cities. And then he lowers it when a train's coming through and he has the schedule of the trains and he knows what's happening. He knows when to do it and when to, etc. He has this little boy and the little boy has off school. The little boy was, I think, 10, 11 years old. The little boy was off school. So he begs his dad, can I go with you to work today? Dad says, yeah, come on, come to work. That's cool. So he brings his fishing rod. He sets him up down on, it's down the bank along the river. He's in the, he's in the shack up high that can look across and see the train coming. And he, he has the levers and the gears that control the, the drawbridge. Now he says to his little boy, he says one very important thing, stay away from the gear house. Don't go anywhere near it. Inside this house is all the big mechanisms and, and wheels that crank and turn and pulleys and levers that keep that, that let lower and raise that bridge. Just do not go near the gear house. Little boy says, okay. The day goes on and suddenly the dad hears a train off in the distance. He looks at the schedule and realizes this train is off schedule. What's it doing coming? So he begins to panic and he goes to lower the bridge right away. And he realizes I don't see my son. So he looks down. His son's not there. The fishing pole's there. No son. He scans all around the, the banks of the river. Cannot find his son. Can't find his son anywhere. He finally looks over at the gear house and there's his little boy with his feet kind of almost hanging up in the air. He's reaching down in the gear house to get something that had fallen down in there. He immediately puts his hands on the glass and hollers through this glass in the this shack that he's in to have the little boy get away. And just as he puts his hands on the glass, the little boy slips and falls into the gear house. Now, the decision that the dad has is much to what Romans 8.32 says. He did not spare his son. Here the dad is faced with this decision. I pull this lever. I murder my son. If I don't pull the lever, that train that is speeding across this river... It's going to plummet into the river and all those passengers with it. He's left with this quandary and you see it in the movie. He's sitting there and he is in incredible turmoil and he's incredible agony. As a father of a little boy, I could not even imagine being faced with that decision. He reaches down, he grabs the lever and he throws the lever at the last possible second. 
The gears begin to crank. The boy is dead. The most moving part of that movie and that clip is when that father comes outside of the shack and the train is whizzing, pumping across that track. And he is standing there sobbing uncontrollably. And on that train, the the artist did a great job in cinematography of capturing this. On that train are people enjoying life. Are people sinning. They show clips of junkies hooking up. They show clips of people making out. They show clips of people on that train just partying and having a great time. Not even realizing the sacrifice that was made to allow them to have that good time. I look at this and I say to people all the time that say, how can God be a good God and allow all this suffering? And I say to him, you know what? I don't know the answer to that, but I know this. It doesn't mean that he's not good because he put himself on the hook of your pain and your suffering. He came to this earth to suffer. And he didn't just come. He didn't just deal with physical pain. We see the movie, the passion of Christ, and we see a bloodied, bludgeoned Jesus. And that's hard. I couldn't imagine dealing with that. But more than that, what the real reality of it was, was here you have the perfect God who's never known sin. You have father and son in perfect harmony. And for the first time now in all of, hum- in all of history, past, present, and future, you now have Jesus, the perfect God, hanging on the cross and uttering the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in all of known time, you now have the wrath of God being poured out on his son, Jesus Christ, because he took sin on for you and for me. The book of Hebrews talks about the reality of Jesus came to sympathize, to empathize with us. Hebrews chapter two and Hebrews chapter four talk about that. So again, those things that define you, that have happened to you, I know, I know full well how they cause us to question the goodness of God, the love of God, But Paul's conviction here is, please, please do not allow it to separate. Look at verse, look at verse 38. He ends this chapter with an absolute bang. He says, for I am convinced. Now the word convinced isn't just a simple vanilla word. It is a passionate, guttural, I am staking my life on this hill and I will die on this. I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to what? Separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So the question I started with, what defines you? What defines me? What is it that I look to that has happened in the past that is still driving me in the future? How have I allowed it to define me? Do I really get my head around that that does not separate me? It does not disprove the love of God. God loves me. God is good. God is for me. The more I fixate on that stuff, the further in my own heart I make the choice to separate myself from God's love, though his love never leaves. It never separates. He is for me. At the end of the day, The challenge is to allow myself to be defined by the love of God. Now, I'll be honest with you. As I think about this, this is not easy. Again, when I left Charlotte, not the woman, but the city. When I left Charlotte, again, life had caved in on me. In a lot of ways, I've shared it many times. I was arrogant. I was proud. I chased my dream at Charlotte. I went after the big star that was blinking in the sky with Adam's name in the center of it. And it came, the wheels fell off the bus. And when I came back, I questioned, I doubted God. I, I'll be honest with you. I'll be gut level honest. I was at such a low place. I'm driving, I'm sure it's where I'm driving. I'm 222 swearing at God, telling him all kinds of dirty things that I'm ashamed of to this day. I was so mad at God. I remember sitting with the, my counselor that I, I got plugged in with who breathed life into me. And I remember sitting with him. And I remember he looked at me in the eyes. And I'm getting to calm down. He looks at me in the eyes and he said something to me that is forever etched in my heart. He looked at me straight in the eyes 
And he said, Adam, you have a problem with the love of God. You talk it. You tell others about it. You don't grasp it. He went on to say, and as he said that, it echoed because the reason it meant so much to me when he said it was because I had a, I had a pastor I served with just four or five years earlier who said the same thing to me. And I didn't listen to him. I remember arguing with that pastor. I remember telling him he was silly. I remember saying, come on, I know about the love of God. I preach about it. I talk about it. But now when the wheels fell off the bus, it was revealed to me that I truly didn't grasp the love of God. And when a counselor looked at me and he said to me, he says, Adam, the reason you don't get it is because it does not define you. He looked at me and said, Jesus is truly not your all in all. You're living for fame and glory. You're living to prove that coach wrong in 10th grade. You're still living because you're afraid of failure and failure is not an option. Your definition of who you are is not on the love of God. It's not the definition of your life. Now, what I've learned since that point, I've learned to grow in that. I've learned to plant myself there. I've learned to to marinate in this. I've learned to just let this soak into my heart. But here's what I've learned. It's not a one-time battle. In fact, I'll be honest. I got up this morning. The irony of this is, is almost crazy. I got up this morning with a dark cloud hanging over me. Feeling depressed, feeling down. I'm kind of a moody person. Some of you know that. I, I kind of go in these ups and downs. And I just kind of feel this, and I'm struggling with this this morning. I get here to church, and my kids sit down here, and Tanya's up here singing. You saw her, so I now have kid duty. And they're down there, the one kid. Tanya's probably laughing because she's the one kid is holding on to the, the seat, slamming into the other kid. The other one is standing on the pew, turning around, staring at everyone and and talking at the top of her lungs. And I'm sitting out here ready to come up on this stage with this dark cloud already hanging over me. And all of a sudden this stuff begins to well up inside of me. I just want to look at these kids and say, what is wrong with you? You know, at the end of the day, sure, they need to learn how to sit still. I get all that. But they're being kids. They're being kids who are bored doing adult things. And there I come walking from that pew up to this stage to tell first service about the love of God and how it should define you. It's not a one-time battle. It's a daily, continual battle. It's every moment of every day stopping to say, am I allowing the love of God to define me in this moment today? And being passionately aggressive at pursuing it. This message of the love of God, honestly, is what the, not only myself, but the elders here at church say we want this church to be about. We went on a retreat, I think three, four weeks ago now. And I always chuckle because we call this thing a retreat. And I come back more drenched. Probably why I still have a dark cloud hanging over me because I still have yet to recover from that weekend. You get very little sleep. You're up working your tails off, really pouring things out and um, giving it your all. We have a great group of elders here, phenomenal group of guys. We've been spending the last two years really talking about what does it mean to be an elder? What does it mean to function as a team? How does a team function in a healthy manner? We did things again at this retreat where we sat around the table and we looked at one another and they spoke into me. I spoke into them and I said, yeah, they said to me, you know what, Adam, this is what you do really well. And you got to keep doing this. if We want this team to succeed. They also looked at me and said, Adam, if you don't cut this behavior out, we're going to really kill this team. Go around a table. We really, we're getting, building this foundation of a healthy, solid team that depends on the spirit of God and depends on the unity of, of these brothers that link arms together and say, we are going to lead and we're going to lead well. And we know what's called of us. So we need to do this thing well. So as we've gotten this foundation kind of built, we've begun the discussion and the really hard work of asking, what is the vision? This is the number one question I think I have been asked consistently since I've been here. What is the vision for Bethany? Uh, vision is simply a word of saying, what's the preferred future? What are we aiming at? What's the, what, are we, what is the target of what we're trying to accomplish and do? So we began to work at our retreat, and this is what I fit in so well with this message. One of the things that we walked away from, we didn't walk away. We walked away with a crystal clear mission. Now, the difference between a mission and a vision in my vocabulary, a mission is a general statement. 
a mission statement for a church should pretty much look the same, maybe different words, but pretty much look the same whether you come here or whether you head up the street to another church. But here it is. Here's the heart. We want as a church to fulfill, we want to accomplish, we want to be about fulfilling Jesus' great commission. Now pause there. Say, what is the great commission? It's in Matthew chapter 28 where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me and I'm now charging you to go out into the world and to make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them everything that I have commanded you. So we said, we want to be about this. We want to see people. Our growth at this church should be because people are coming to know Jesus. Not because people are jumping ship from another church. We want to be about the Great Commission being fulfilled. Now, we also then talked about, well, how represent this love to the world. We also then talked about, well, how do you do that? Well, we do that by living out the great commandment. What's the great commandment? The great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love God with everything that you are and everything that you have. Love him. Make sure there are no idols in my heart. Make sure that I, he, and my definition is completely wrapped up in who Jesus is. I love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is my all in all. I find my complete and total satisfaction in him. And the outgrowth of that is I love others. Love God, love others. As we do that, as we love well, we fulfill the Great Commission naturally. It's not something that's forced, pushed upon us gut it out, but it's something that happens naturally. I'll wrap up by saying this to the elders also, as we talked about just reporting, okay, we start talking vision, start talking about what we, I want to share some of the key words. And here's the thing I've learned. Vision isn't about me standing here and waxing eloquent and then everyone getting in line and going after it. What I believe vision really is, it's kind of like when Henry Ford created the automobile. He was a visionary. He could see things into the future and he envisioned it and he went after it. But guess what? All he was really doing was connecting with the heart of the people who wanted to travel further more efficiently. So he envisioned the automobile. What I believe vision really does is us looking at your hearts and what we've captured is what this church already has a heart to do. And we're saying we just want to do it better. Um, John 10.10 is where we get this one. At some capacity, we want to be about life and life to the full. Jesus Christ did not come to this earth to solely get me to heaven. He came to this earth to give me abundant, rich life. So when people become a part of Bethany, when we reach out to our community, we want people to say, we want you to have life. So many people in today's day and age do not live life. They exist. The next word that we captured was the word family. And here's why this is a big deal with the love of God. Here's why this is a huge deal. Chances are the majority of you, if I'd ask for a show of hands, I would better be at least 80% of this room. The thing that has defined you comes from your family of origin. Family of origin is one of the, the sharpest and strongest definitions of my life. Family of origin is huge. When I do pre-marriage counseling, it is the number one thing we talk about. Because family of origin, how I was raised, how I wasn't raised, how I was neglected or how I was loved is going to deeply shape me in my marriage and moving forward. And we believe with all of our heart in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, we see that man and woman are created in the image of God. And when they come together, it says they are put together, man and woman, to represent the image of God. And the very next thing God tells Adam is be fruitful and increase in number. So as they have children, the goal is then that the children look to mom and dad as a representation of the image of God. So when that breaks down to the degree that breaks down, we struggle to see and understand the biblical God. So we're saying, Hey, if we're going to be about the love of God, we've got to be about the family because when the family breaks down, it makes it very hard for people to embrace the love of God. So about physical family, helping the physical family, helping the physical family be healthy and whole and bring healing to where there's been mistakes and pain and heartache. Work with single people and what it means to be single and how to live single in a healthy way. What it means to then live within the context of your singleness in relation to your family of origin and where you've come from. Be about family. And then the second one of that is spiritual family. Because we're out at the end of the day, our families, at some level, every single family in this room, although we don't like to admit it, you can turn to the person beside you if you're related to them and say, you're jacked up. 
At some level, every one of our families has issues. Every one of our families has sin. Every one of our families have either small dysfunction or huge, big dysfunction at some level. So one of the beauties of is God designed this thing called the the spiritual body of Christ, the church. So he says, we want to be about people. And when people come into this church, we want them to see and experience family love, the love of God. So family is a big deal and it plays into how we talk about the love of God. And the final word that we want to throw out is the word adoption. Now, this word, I have learned since I've been at Bethany, I'm going to be very honest. I've, I've seen this over and over. This word scares some people. What I mean by that is what I have seen is people, I've actually had some people, and I really appreciate and respect those who have been brave enough to say it to me. I really respect them. They said, you know what? We're tired of hearing about adoption. There's some of you here that have told me that. And I get what you're saying because you've heard it a lot from this church to the point where, where some of you have said to me, I am not called to adopt. So quit shoving it down my throat. And I say, thank you for being honest. So what I want to clarify is when we say adoption, we aren't just talking about every one of us physically adopting. What we're talking about is we're talking about being about spiritual adoption. When we understand what spiritual adoption is, spiritual adoption is God choosing me. We talked about this last week. It gives us assurance. It gives us security. It gives me the reality that I am in his family. Adoptions, when we understand spiritual adoption, it also understands the concept of freedom. When I'm adopted, it eradicates laws and rules, and it helps me live free in Jesus. We're about spiritual adoption. We're about seeing people come in to the family of God. And as a result, when we really understand our spiritual adoption, a natural a natural outgrowth of that is physical adoption. A natural outgrowth is being about the fatherless. I sat this past week at Cross Connections Banquet on Tuesday. And my heart just beat in my chest. There's a ministry right here in our area that this church supports that cares for the fatherless. See, we can talk about, when we talk about the fatherless, it's not just about adopting them into my home It's about caring for kids. You know, there's kids in this church that are fatherless, but they go home to mom and dad. They go home and get in bed and they're they're maybe being kissed goodnight by their dad, but they're fatherless because their dad lives for his job. Their dad is totally detached emotionally. Their dad is maybe abusive. So we are going to be about saying we are about those who suffer and hurt children that do not have a voice, the fatherless, at some capacity doesn't mean we all adopt children. It doesn't mean we all give money to adopt children. It doesn't mean, it means that we, because we understand spiritual adoption, we want to reach out to those that are hurting in the context of family and bring them in to experience family. It's a big deal to us. That's why this morning, following this service, Mark Unger is going to be here. It kind of, he called me last minute and said, hey, could I get in? I'm going to be here teaching this week. He's going to be here with a cool program. There's going to be a lot of other information come out about this. So if you can't make it, that's cool. But he head out here in room 208, immediately following a 15 to 30-minute time where he's going to talk about a program that he's and Cross Connection are working together in conjunction with our church to do that. Enough said with that. I want to come back to kind of the message of God's love. And we're going to end with communion. When you talk about the love of God, I think one of the most beautiful pictures we have is communion. So we're going to end our service this morning with communion and just really allow us to meditate on this love of God and ask the question, what separates me from it? What defines me? Is it the love of God? As we talked last week, we talked about the word remember. This communion table is a table of remembrance. It's designed for us to to have something tangible, to look back and to stop our lives, to slow us down and say, this is what Jesus has done for me. The bread, what is communion? There's all kinds of teachings on this and some are skewed, some are... Communion to us simply means, the Bible teaches simply and clearly, it's a way to remember. It's a tangible way to look back and remember what Jesus has done. When we eat the bread, what we're doing is remembering and what he has done for me as his body broke. As we drink the juice, what we're remembering is the blood that was poured out for us. Now, here's the thing. A couple instructions as we do this. First one, this is a big deal to me. If you're here this morning and you say, I am not a Christian, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. First of all, I want to say thanks for being here. Second thing I'll say is thanks for being honest about your journey. Third thing I'll say, let this stuff pass by you. Do not take it. It's not for you. Thanks for being here. We hope you enjoyed this morning, but it's not for you. 
Next thing I'll say, if you're here this morning, you're a Christian. If you're a Christian and you are not at peace with God, you're not intimate. You know there's something that you need to deal with and you do, cannot deal with it this morning. You know you can't. Let this stuff pass by. Thanks for your honesty. Thanks for being real. Thanks for in advance for trying to go home and deal with it this week, but let it pass by you. Third thing I'll say is if you're here this morning, you know you've got something between someone else that you cannot resolve this morning, let this stuff pass by. Again, thanks for your honesty. Thanks for being real. Let this stuff pass by. 1 Corinthians 11, this is a serious time. 1 Corinthians 11 says that there are actually people who were taking communion and dying, physically dying, because they weren't doing it in an appropriate manner. So I don't say this to threaten you, and if, you, if you're one of those categories and you take it, you're going to be struck dead. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying this is a big deal to us. It's a big deal to just stop and meditate and reflect on what Jesus has done for me. And if you're one of those other categories, thanks for being here. I'd encourage you as communion takes place just to meditate on where you're at with Christ and, and maybe some of your objections and sit there and honestly question and wrestle and pray and talk to God about it. Let me pray for us. And what we're going to do is the elders and some ushers are going to come up. We're going to pass the elements out. Once everything is passed, we'll come back together and we'll actually partake of the bread and the cup together as a body. But let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for his love. Thank you for his love that uh, radically defines us and can define us. As we partake of communion here, God, would it be a special time for us just as each person to stop and reflect and to think and to meditate on what you have done for us. So often we define ourselves. I define myself by my family of origin, by the stuff that's happened to me, by the stuff that, by the, the stuff And God, it doesn't separate us from you. You're a God who loves. You're a God who's come to this earth to put himself on the hook of human suffering. You're a God who's come to this earth to give me the resources to suffer well. You're a God who says, I love you so much, Adam. I am willing to send my son, as it says in verse 32, I am going to not spare a thing. I'm going to give everything I have to reach you. Thank you for that. And may that message of love and of grace and of mercy and of crossing the chasm and the great divide. May that message define my life and define it well. May it define all of our lives as we partake of communion. May we just stop and reflect and ask those questions. Is it defining me? And thank you and worship you for what you have done for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.